The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Today we look at another prickly, difficult one, and that is what the Bible has to say about lawsuits or suing one another. And again, before we start, I want to set the guidelines or the parameters here, because it's it's a narrow focus. I'm not going to be comprehensive at all. My focus here, when I say what the Bible says about lawsuits, it has to do with uh, Christian lawsuits against against other Christians, or uh, Christians suing other Christians, primarily. I'll address a couple of other issues that are related, but that's the main point of emphasis here, because it comes right out of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6. I've got six points I want to highlight. Point number three is the main one, that's where I want to camp out. And that is out of 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul addresses this directly with the Corinthian congregation, Christians and lawsuits. Um, but let's go ahead and look at these six important principles. Like I said, I'm not going to answer every question. I, I might even This sermon just might uh, pro- provoke questions in your mind that are unanswered at the end of the sermon. That's fine. I want you to think. I want you to think about God's truth. This is not comprehensive or exhaustive in our study. Really, I'm just trying to set up boundaries or guidelines or parameters by which you can think as a Christian on this issue. And then you have to take the general universal principles and apply those on your own, case by case, with the help of the Holy Spirit, godly counsel, when confronted with the situations, to those situations as they approach you in living life. So this is a broad Study from that perspective. I'm not trying to answer every question. So let's go ahead and look at it. What does the Bible have to say about lawsuits and Christian lawsuits in particular? And let's go to point number one to lay the groundwork. And before I, yeah, I'll tell you what that is. Point number one is that God believes in justice. Real simple. God believes in justice. Why? Well, He is the judge. It's one of His names. God has so many names in Scripture. Every one of God's names speaks of His very character and who He is. He's unchanging. And all these different names about Him talk about His very nature and character. And The Bible, time and time again, calls God judge. That's what Psalm 75, verse 7 says categorically. It just says God is the judge. That was one of about 40 verses I could have given that say that. James 4 says the same thing. There's only one judge. It is God, Yahweh the triune God of the universe. He's the judge. He's the eternal judge. He's an omniscient, all-knowing judge. He's an omnipotent, all-powerful judge. He's the final judge, the ultimate judge. He's a perfect judge. He's a good judge. God is the ultimate judge and therefore He he believes in justice, stands up for justice, and ultimately will preserve justice and implement all justice of all time, even the injustices that have gone by throughout history. He is the judge. And then God believes in justice. We know that by virtue of His revelation that He gave to us in Scripture, the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. He is the lawgiver. God is... He believes in justice. We know that because He gave the law. He is the lawgiver. As a matter of fact, the lawgiver, that's another one of God's names. God the lawgiver. He's a God of law. Good law, perfect law, holy, supernatural, divine law, unchangeable, irrevocable law. The best and only kind of law. That's what James 4.12 says about God the lawgiver. I want to read that because it's such a great passage. Uh, James 4, 
Well, I'll read the whole context, actually, because it's... Um, I'll start at verse 11. He's talking to Christians here, James, the half-brother of Jesus, to a congregation. He says, do not speak against one another. In other words, do not malign one another. Don't gossip about each other. Quit criticizing one another. Quit judging one another. Christians, do not speak against one another. Brethren, Christians, brethren, don't do that. The one who speaks against a fellow Christian in an illegitimate matter, in a critical way, in a judgmental way, judges his brother, judges a fellow Christian illegitimately. Stop it. Don't do that. These are imperatives. These are commands. Uh, Modern vernacular, beginning of verse 11, knock it off. He who speaks against a fellow Christian illegitimately or judges his brother illegitimately speaks against the law, the law of God. You invoke the perfect standard of God and you command somebody else to obey it in all ways perfectly because that's your expectation. And the irony and the hypocrisy is is you're just as much of a lawbreaker as they are. That's what he's saying. None of us are perfect. Us sinners. So quit trying to play judge. Quit trying to be God. Stop judging your fellow believer. Whenever you speak against... uh, Let's see. If you judge your brother, you speak against the law and you, you become a judge of the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And then he goes on in verse 12. But there's only one lawgiver and judge. There is no vacancy there. You're not a candidate. Uh, There's only one lawgiver, capital L, that is God. Judge. Only one judge, capital J. The one, capital O, this is God. The one who is able to save and to destroy. Destroy as judge. But who are you, Christian? Who are you, judgmental Christian, to judge your fellow Christian? Wow, what a great practical passage that exhorts us, but at the same time reveals the very character of God. God believes in justice. He is the great law giver. Um, Before I expand on that point, I did want to bring up some common phrases that maybe Christians believe, uh, some that I actually frequently hear from well-meaning Christians and believers. Maybe you even believe some of these. But I want to highlight these. These are inaccurate, they're fallacious, they're not in accordance with biblical truth regarding law, courts, lawsuits. But here's some popular ones that you may have heard. Uh, Some people would say as Christians, we are to never defend ourselves. Never defend yourself. I'd say that's not true. There is context. Another false statement. Christians should not go to court, or Christians should never go to court. That's not true. That is not what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Another one. Uh, We should just give unbelievers grace and no law. We should only be gracious and loving to unbelievers and not give them law, God's law. That is not true. As a matter of fact, just the opposite is true. According to the New Testament, according to Jesus, when He evangelized, He used the law to expose their sin. They need to know that they have the need for a Savior, you do that with the law. Uh, Another false statement that sometimes Christians believe, the law is bad, or the law is useless, or the law is obsolete. That is not true. We know that because all the... Jesus Himself, when He teaches authoritatively, and He says, it is written. It stands written. It remains authoritative. He's quoting from the law. The Apostle Paul does the same thing. He quotes from the law to validate his points to Christians, as does Peter and James, and on and on. So it's wrong to say that the law or the law of God is... When I'm talking, by the way, when I'm talking about the law, I'm talking about Old Testament Scripture, okay? 
I'm not talking about the United States Constitution. I'm talking about scriptural law as given by God. And some would try to tell us, well, the law is bad, useless, and obsolete. We don't, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. We're New Testament Christians. That's not true. Uh, another one. We don't need the law. And just, it's a similar point. Uh, another one. Christians can sue other Christians. That's kind of the other extreme. Started out with, you should never defend yourself. You should never go to court. Or going to court is always wrong. And then the other extreme is, no, it's okay for Christians to sue other Christians. Scripture addresses these directly, so let's go ahead and look at it. Um, and so that point number one is that God believes in justice. We need to understand that. Uh, and just for us who are so familiar with Scripture, we read it all the time. And I don't know what you think about the Old Testament, but let me refresh or maybe enlighten your perspective. Maybe you never thought about it this way in terms of this reality that God is a God of justice. He is a judge. He has a legal mind. The Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament, a lot of information there. Many people... When they think about the Bible, they think, well, it's a religious book. That's how they primarily think. Oh, it's just a religious book. Or it's a spiritual book. Or it's a moral kind of book. Well, those are all true. Or it's a historical book. It's a bunch of history. That, that is also true. But how often do we think that it is a legal book? When was the last time you thought about that? That's how you, as a matter of fact, I would say that's kind of the dominant genre of the Old Testament, especially the first five books. It is primarily law. It is historical law. It is moral law. It is spiritual and religious law, but it is law. Legal. As a matter of fact, the Jews called the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they called it the law, the Torah. That's what it was called. It's a legal book. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws in the Old Testament, uh, another example just to show you that that is the very essence of what the Bible is in the Old Testament. It is law. It's law from God. It's divine law. The longest chapter in the Bible is, you would say, Psalm 119. Very good. How many verses? A bunch is what you would say. So you've got the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses, and every single one of the 176 verses refers to God's Old Testament law. It uses Several formal terms that are interchangeable and synonymous, emphasizing that God's Word... So if you looked at Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, it's about in the middle of your Bible, flip it open. All of Psalm 119 is about the Word of God, the written Old Testament, God's divine revelation given to us, inscripturated, written down for us, the Word of God. In Psalm 119, verse 17, it's called Thy Word. It's called God's Word. In verse 9, it is called God's Word, Thy Word. So we're talking about the Old Testament as God's Word. But then there are these other descriptions of God's Word. In verse 1, it is called the Law of the Lord. That is a legal term. Verse 5, it is called the Statutes of God. That is another legal term. At the end of verse 6, it is called the Commandments of God. Another legal term. At the end of verse 7, it is called the Judgments of God. In verse 13, it's called the ordinances of God, another legal term. So it's all these legal descriptions. Is how the psalmist of 119 describes God's Word, the Old Testament. Why? Because God is the lawgiver. God believes in justice. He is the judge. Let's go on to point number two. Because God is the judge and believes in justice and is the lawgiver, it only makes sense that He gave procedures for disputes among His people. He gave procedures. These are formal, 
systematized, objective patterns and strategies of how to deal with disputes, conflicts, and even legal issues. He is the ultimate supreme justice, and he has given to his people formal procedures for dealing with disputes and conflicts. Point number two, I want to emphasize that God gave procedures for disputes among his people. The overriding principle that we're going to see in the Old Testament and New Testament regarding God's procedures for dealing with disputes is that believers always go before a tribunal, a court, or a judge who is a believer and who is using God's law. Always. Never in the Old Testament, never in the New Testament, never in history does God want His people, does God want believers going to unbelieving courts and judges to settle disputes between believers. When it's believer against believer, God wants the believing community to deal with that dispute. It's clear in the Old Testament. It's clear in the New. We're going to see that. But God gave specific procedures for dealing with disputes. I just want to look at a couple. The one uh, where it began, civil law, um, guarding, guiding, directing, preserving the entire society of that nation that God was creating called the nation of Israel. In Exodus 18, they come. Uh, God brings His people, over a million people, out of Egypt. They were in slavery. Uh, they're going around in the wilderness, the desert. At some point, they're going to go into the promised land across the Jordan River. And before they get to the promised land, God makes it clear to His people in order to have civility in society and stability and order. Sin needs to be restrained externally and I will do that through law. So Moses, you will implement law. You will have laws and you will have judges of those laws. That's the context. He's preparing the nation of Israel for an orderly, God-ordained society. And so Exodus 18, verse 19 through 23 is where you have the beginning of civil law for an entire community of people as given by God. So uh, look at verse 19. Exodus chapter 18. This is just before the Ten Commandments are given to Moses. Uh, and so here, you know, Moses has like a million people to deal with. He's got one leader for a million people. That's hard to do. And it was his responsibility to settle disputes in the people there in the desert. And if people were squabbling or had a problem or somebody stole somebody's sheep and ate it for dinner yesterday without asking, whoa, that was a legal issue, uh, that's theft. And so they'd have to take the case before Moses. And then he's inundated with uh, 600 disputes and he's too busy to do it all. So his father-in-law comes to him and gives him some fatherly wisdom and says, Moses, you need some helpers, man. Why don't you appoint a bunch of just judges who are going to use the law rightly and they can take the uh, more menial cases and then the, the biggies, you can be the Supreme Court and if they can't handle it, those will come to you. That way you can delegate your work so you don't spread yourself too thin. That's the context of Exodus 18. Very wise. And starting at verse 19 of chapter 18 in Exodus, it says this, Now listen to me. This is his father-in-law talking. Now listen to me. Son-in-laws, listen to your father-in-law. Verse 19, that's the point. Now listen to me. That's what I'm going to say when I meet my daughter's first boyfriend. But anyway, now listen to me. I shall give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representative Moses before God because God's appointed you to do that. And you bring the disputes to God. Then teach the statutes and the laws, these are legal terms, from Scripture, the Old Testament, and make known to them the people, teach the people Scripture and God's Word what you need to do. Very practical. Make them known. Uh, tell the people God's Word. Tell them the way in which they are to walk, how they're supposed to live, how they're supposed to conduct themselves, how they're supposed to restrain their own evil. 
what the laws are and the work they are to do. So in other words, it is your responsibility, Moses, as a teacher of the Word, to eliminate ignorance of the people. Eliminate ignorance of the people. And I thought about it as I read that verse. That is one of the goals I have today is to eliminate ignorance among God's people. And if you walk away with just one truth that you have ingrained in your mind forever, boy, I'm a Christian. I am never supposed to sue another believer in a pagan court. Wow, you've learned a lot. You've assumed one of God's great concerns one of the priorities of what I wanted to share today. So teach them this, Moses. So he's laying out guidelines. So this was Old Testament procedure. Uh, verse 21, Furthermore, and this is practical, you shall select out of all the people among the Israelites, the Jews, the believing community, able men who they are qualified, they fear God, they are men of truth, they fear His Word, there's an objective standard for truth, not based on opinion or prejudice, or personal preference, those who hate dishonest gain, they hate evil, they hate bribery. You can't buy these judges. These are the qualifications. And you shall place these qualified judges as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. All kinds of courts all over the place. And let, the, let them judge the people at all times, and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, the Supreme Court, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. So that's how he began to proceed. So this is one of the first things that God delineated by way of procedures for God's believing community in the Old Testament. And you can just read on all throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, more and more legal procedures, and they get very specific and very detailed. God was very concerned. So that's uh, legal proceedings in, for disputes in the Old Testament. Oh, by the way, if you take all the Old Testament laws and what God had to say about it and what the judges were supposed to be like, here's a summary of what God's law and His uh, judicial and jurisprudence procedures were typified by or characterized by and, characterize, and compare that with uh, the justice system here in America today. The Old Testament law, as given and intended by God, was equitable. In other words, it was fair. As a matter of fact, a repeated refrain. When you go to court and then a, a verdict was rendered and there was a guilty party, the standard of equitability was eye for eye, tooth for tooth. What did that mean? That meant that the punishment needed to be fitting the crime. So that was a safeguard to ensure that there weren't what we called uh, punitive damages, which happens all the time today in America. These frivolous, unjust Cases called uh, that aren't eye for eye, tooth for tooth. They are uh, punitive. They are. It's almost stealing. It is a breach and a violation of true law. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. There were safeguards against that, and that was the principle of eye for eye. There was compensation though for loss and damages, but not punitive damages, where you just punish somebody. That maybe a familiar case uh, to you was in 1992 when a lady was going through in Arizona and she drove through. Uh, a McDonald's drive-through ordered a 49-cent cup of coffee. She had a kid in the back seat. He was messing around. She took the hot cup of coffee. She put it between her laps, messing with her kid, and then she goes to take the lid off to put creamer or whatever, and she spilled the hot cup of coffee in her lap. And then she took McDonald's to court, and she sued him. And there was a jury, and the jury granted her or the judge uh, the case and 2.8 million dollars for punitive damages for burning her thighs 
with a cup of coffee that she spilled because her kid was messing around in the backseat. Talk about frivolous, unfair. Uh, Old Testament law would have been a safeguard against that. So that was not equitable at all. But the Old Testament law, it was the way God gave it. It was equitable. It was fair. Uh, the Old Testament law, it was, ir- it was invariable. It didn't change. God's law didn't change. And we see ch- laws changing all the time in our midst, don't we? Thank God we see some bad laws changing, but we also see some good laws changing. We see the law, the United States, early on, we had laws in this country that defined what marriage was. Literally, on the books. Marriage is between a man and a woman. That's it. One man, one woman. Now that they're trying to change that law. God's law is invariable. It couldn't change. Like I said, there were laws that needed to change. Early on in this country, it was a, you know, the law, United States law, and some Supreme Court justices even didn't recognize black people as human beings. Like in the famous Dred Scott case. Black man, born in 1800 or 1795. He was born in America, by the way. He was born in Virginia. He was born in Virginia. So later on in his life, when he went to court to try to gain his freedom, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States voted against him and said, no, you don't get your freedom. Why? Because you are property. You are property. You're not a person. You're property. And that was on the books as law here in the United States of America. That was a bad law. That law needed to change. That law violated God's law. God's law said in the very beginning in Genesis 1 that every human being is created in the very image of God, man and woman. It doesn't matter what your color is. Every human being, sacred, precious, made in God's image. That is God's law. So any human law that violates and contradicts God's law is a bad law. No, actually, it is a satanic law. Undermines and devalues human life itself. Just like other laws that we have had. It wasn't until 1920 in the 19th Amendment where women could, all women in America could actually vote. I think prior to that, laws that prohibited women from voting was not a good law. Because Genesis 1.26 and Galatians chapter 3 say that men and women are made in the image of God equally. Equally as human beings. And it wasn't until 1920 finally where we got that right. But we didn't get everything right because in the 1970s we had Roe versus Wade where seven of the nine Supreme Court justices ruled in favor saying that according to law, a baby inside the womb is not a human being. Horrific. Violating God's law. Every human being, even the baby inside the womb that became a human being at the point of conception, according to Psalm 51, verse 5, was made in the image of God. But God's law doesn't change. God's law is equitable. It is fair. God's law is invariable. It doesn't change. God's law and the procedures were prompt, expeditious. They were efficient. That's not true, unfortunately, in the United States or modern law. You just have to keep going through the, the hoops, don't you? Getting the ringer. Oh, we got, oh, we got a new judge. He's got to throw the case out start all over again. And on and on and on and on. And mo- wasted money, wasted time. wasted Unbelievable. Very frustrating. That was not true of God's Old Testament law. It was efficient. It was quick. It was prompt. Just this whole 49-cent cup of coffee incident took two years to litigate and finally, finally come up and render a verdict. Human beings, we just mess things up, don't we? God's law is equitable and variable, prompt, impartial. God's law is impartial. Not based on prejudice, preference, some judge's political persuasion, how much money his uh, caucus gave him or whatever. God's judgments were to be totally impartial, consistent with law and eternal, universal, objective truth. That was God's law. 
That was the Old Testament. In the New Testament, going back to God gave procedures for disputes, uh, that's also given in the New Testament. Maybe you read these sometimes in more of a personal matter and not in a legal way, but let's go ahead and look at them. Uh, I've got listed there legal procedures that God gave for His people in the New Testament. I put down Matthew 18. Before you go to Matthew 18, look at Matthew 5 first. Okay? Matthew 5 first, because there is uh, legal implications. There, there are legal implications to Matthew 5, starting at verse 23. I mean, Jesus is quoting the law all throughout this entire sermon he gave in Matthew 5 to 7 because the law was the authority. It was God's authority. So it is legal. It's legal on a personal level. It's also legal on a civil and corporate level. And then in Matthew 5, starting in verse 23, he says, If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar... And he's talking about hating people. If therefore you are presenting your offering, you're being religious, worshiping God. Therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar. And there, remember that your brother has something against you. And the implication here is that you know somebody has something against you because you are in the wrong. You're feeling a little guilty. Ooh, yeah, I did. I did break their window and they probably saw me and I didn't tell them about it and I should probably repair their window and, oh, I'm not going to get away with this one. That is the implication in the context. You know that you have probably done something wrong to your brother, brother, the Jewish community, the believing community is the context. For us, it would be the Christian community. If you know that you have wronged a fellow believer, you haven't done anything about it, Jesus says you need to do something about it. And you need to do it quickly, promptly, expeditiously. Verse 24, leave your offering. Make it the priority. Leave your offering there before the altar, before God. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offering. Deal with it quickly. Verse 5, there's a sense of urgency. Verse 25, make friends quickly. Be at peace quickly with your opponent at law. There it is, see? Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge. See, there it is. They can take you to court. This would be the Jewish court, the synagogue. And if you're guilty, deliver you to the judge and the judge will hand you over to the policeman and rightfully so and cuff you up and you'll be thrown into prison. Verse 26, and Jesus says, and you deserve it, truly I say to you. You shall not come out of there until you have paid the last cent of recompense and served your sentence and paid your fine. So that's legal proceedings. And then look at Matthew 18. And Jesus mentions the word church. So this specifically is in reference to the church, the believing community, fellow Christians, New Testament era. So it applies to us. This would be one of the distinctives of GBF, in my opinion, after working over 20 years at six different churches uh, GBF is committed to this process in dealing with disputes among the brethren, the believers of our members in this church. And it is a legal process. It is a legal procedure. Matthew 18, starting at verse 15. If your brother sins, whatever it is, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. So it's one-on-one first. Between believer and believer. Face to face. The NIV says in verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. Literally, present him the evidence. That is a legal phrase. You can't concoct accusations out of the air, out of thin air with no evidence. This is law. If your brother sins, go and reprove him, show him his fault, bring the evidence, mount up the evidence. It's got to be objective. It's got to be in accordance with truth. Reprove him in private, one-on-one first. If they listen to you, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. It is forgiven. There's restoration. Case closed. It's over. 
Step one. Then step two. But if the believer does not listen to you, he doesn't respond, then, uh, then you need to take one or two more with you. Why? Because that's an Old Testament process for dealing with legal issues and lawsuits. In the Old Testament, you couldn't uh, make an accusation against somebody based on the testimony of one person. It always had to be uh, verified by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And Jesus says that also applies to the church. The Old Testament applies to the church in that regard, this principle of legality. If he doesn't listen to you, then take one or two other people with you so that, and he quotes the Old Testament, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And that's coming right out of Old Testament law. This is a legal issue. The, court needs, the church needs to be involved in law. We need to have church courts between believers. In other words, it's formal. A formal way of dealing with disputes among believers. We don't deal with unbelievers that way. It's believers. And there's a procedure. And it is formal. It's based on truth. It's what God said. That doesn't work. And the sinner doesn't listen to or whoever's being accused doesn't listen to the two or three of you. Then there's the next step. Step three, and that's verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. You tell it to the leaders. The elders get involved. They are the judges. This is like God said in the Old Testament where it had to go and be escalated to the point of the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court of the local church is the plurality of the elders. That's the Supreme Court. All the cases shouldn't come to us. They should be resolved, most of them, at the lower level between believers because believers are competent, able, and have the ability to resolve their disputes. Or they should by God's design. But if it has to be escalated and rises to that level, then the elders need to get involved, as does the church body. Tell it to the church. And then even if he refuses to listen to the church, then you go to the fourth step and then let him to be to you. Then you have, the church has to render a verdict then. And the verdict is this person is not acting like a believer. They're not responding to several calls to repentance. Therefore, we have to conclude by virtue of their testimony and the way they're acting and their hardness of heart, they're probably not a Christian. That's the verdict we render. Therefore, we will treat you like an unbeliever. How's that? We will pray for your salvation. We will evangelize you. But we will not consider you a believer like we used to. That's the legal process the church is supposed to implement. Huge implications, practically speaking, for GBF. Bottom line, believers, when they're involved in a dispute with another believer, go only before believing judges with a believing law, which is Scripture, and a believing court, which is the church. Let's go on to number three. Christians may never sue other Christians. I'll add a little phrase on the end of that. Christians may never sue other Christians in a pagan court or in a secular court. Man, I've seen this over the course of 20 years in the churches I've been involved in with Christians I've interacted with. I've seen good friends that I had at churches get so angry at a church they were at, they literally sued the church, not just the pastor and another Christian, suing the church. Blatant violation. So I deal with this all the time as far as talking to people, especially in other churches and council, and see it all over the place. Christians suing other Christians. Christians suing churches that they were once a part of, violating basic ordinances of God. So let's go ahead and look at this all-important central passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul planted this church in Corinth. He spent a year and a half there pastoring. Then he left and put some leadership in place and Heard about them a little later that they weren't doing so well. They were involved in sexual immorality and all kinds of petty division. That's, petty division could just wreck a church. That's what was going on here. They were arrogant. They thought they were wise. They thought they were supernaturally wise and had all this wisdom. 
the irony in in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says he has to correct them and they're thinking, he says, you don't, you don't, church, you don't have the authority to judge unbelievers the way you do the church. So stop it. That's verse 12 of chapter 5. We don't judge outsiders. We don't hold them to the same standard as we do with believers. That's verse 12. And the irony is, so here you are judging unbelievers and yet you're not judging the people you're supposed to be judging, which is believers, which is the context of 1 Corinthians 6. So let's read through it. Christians may never sue other Christians in a pagan or secular court. Believers can take another believer with a dispute to a court, but it has to be the court of the church. So Paul says this, Does any one of you... Now, it's a rhetorical question and it is a rebuke. Paul's angry, actually. He is embarrassed. He doesn't even want to talk about this. It is so shameful. This is like Christianity 101. This is so basic. I can't believe I'm having to tell you guys this, that you shouldn't be suing each other in front of pagans and unbelievers. That is the tone of his attitude. Let's read it. Does any one of you, when he has a case or a lawsuit or a formal grievance against his neighbor, a fellow believer, that's what he's talking about, dare, how dare you, go to law... Go to the courts. Literally, go to seek justice. There's a play on words coming up. You want to seek justice? How dare you go before the unjust. That is the word. Unrighteous. You're seeking justice and you go before the unjust? You've got to be kidding me. What a moronic, ironic paradox how idiotic is that? You're seeking justice, so you're going to go before the unjust? He's using categorical terms and he's calling the unrighteous. He's referring to people who are not Christians. These are people who are not saved. They are not justified. They haven't been saved. They're not born again. They are not Christians. They are not believers. How dare you, two Christians, two parties, go to unbelievers and into their court trying to seek justice? And you neglect to do it before the saints. You don't go before the believers to solve your disputes. How, how dare you? So Paul's mad. But he's speaking authoritatively as an apostle of Jesus Christ led by the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying is legitimate, bona fide, true, and deserved. Verse 2. Or, see he's asking a whole bunch of questions here. Or do you not know? So he's actually being a, an interrogator. He's interrogating them. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Wow, there's another great truth. All throughout Scripture, the Bible teaches that believers are supposed to be God's vice regents here in this life and especially in the life to come. Vice regents of God. Judges for God. We will rule for God, especially in the future. Scripture is clear about that. Daniel chapter 7 says, at the end of the age when the Messiah comes and He takes over the entire world as President Jesus, He will entrust judgment of the entire world and of the angels into the lap and the care of the saints. The believers. By the word, the Greek word for saint there is holy one. One who has been made holy by God. Set apart by God as a sacred, uh, special people for a sacred, special purpose to rule on God's behalf. A holy one. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. Saint whoever you are. Saint Nicholas. Saint William. Saint whatever. Saint Ryan. Saint Clifford. Saint Nancy. Saint, there's a female saints too. That's what the word means. So he's contrasting the unrighteous with saints in verse 1. And he says, don't you know that saints, that believers, and that means all of you, 
are going to someday be a judge on behalf of God and Jesus Himself. You're going to be a vice regent. We saw this already in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Remember that? He who overcomes will sit with Me on My judgment throne as I was allowed to sit on the judgment throne of God and rule on behalf of God. And I will be given an iron scepter to rule with as a king, as a queen, as a vice regent on behalf of God. Smashing the pottery to pieces in judgment at the end of the age. What a great and glorious privilege we have. Man, if that is our future, if that is our destiny, if that's our inheritance, what in the world are we doing right now neglecting that that role? So his point is in verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The saints, the believers, the church, they are competent to handle those these disputes that you have right now. You don't need to go to a legal court. I don't care if it is Judge Judy or Judge Wapner or whoever it is. Don't go there, Christian, with another believer. The court of the church is sufficient. Believers are sufficient. God's Word is sufficient. The indwelling Holy Spirit is sufficient. God's truth is sufficient. Prayer is sufficient. The virtues that God has given Christians is sufficient. Love, forgiveness, kindness, generosity, patience, restoration, reconciliation. Everything you need, total sufficiency to to resolve disputes, is given to the church and to believers. Therefore, don't you know that the saints will judge the world and the world... Is, uh, and if the world, verse 2, is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law court? And plus, you guys are going to court over little petty things. Man, you guys are going to judge the angels, the greatest creations of God. You can handle that. And you can't even handle these petty, menial disputes today? Wow. Verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? It's a reality. How much more matters of this life? Man, just little petty issues. You're going to be able to judge eternal supernatural things in the future. Verse 4, if then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? So you're having these little courts you're putting together and you're actually appointing pagan judges to settle your disputes among Christians. Unbelievable. Paul's just kind of getting his ire up as he goes. It's just one ridiculous truth after another. Of no account, of no standing. He's saying unbelievers, the unrighteous, have no account, no authority, no standing in the church over the issues that Christians have to deal with. Zip. Nada. This is not their jurisdiction. Hands off in the church. Verse 5. I say this to your shame. He's rebuking them as an apostle. From God. Shameful. It's shameful. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man? Chapter 1, they were talking about how wise they are. And so he's being sarcastic here. You guys were saying how wise you are. I mean, you don't have one Christian wise enough to solve this dispute. You have to go to Judge Judy outside the church to a pagan court to solve this. All the wisdom you need is in Christ. If you're a believer, Christ lives in you. All wisdom is in Scripture. You've got all the wisdom you need. Is there not one among you wise enough to handle this? Despite, uh, to decide between brethren. Verse 6, But brother goes to law with brother. Believer goes to court with believer. Christian sues Christian what he's saying and that god forbid before unbelievers verse 7 actually then it is already defeat for you man you're if you're doing that you're losing maybe you won the verdict before a pagan judge but you lose in the eyes of god before you even got into the courtroom because it's disobedient to god you're undermining the blessing of the holy spirit in your life you're short-circuiting spiritual growth you're making a lousy testimony of the church before an unbelieving world. There are so many detrimental consequences to this. You are losing before you step in the door. 
of a pagan court when you do that. So that's what he's saying. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you. You are a loser. That you have lawsuits with one another with fellow believers. Why not rather just be wronged? Why not rather just be defrauded? Just eat it. Take the loss if you have to. If this was with believers. Well, that's hard to do, isn't it? Because sometimes the stakes are high. I've been down this road. I've been down it personally. I remember Debbie and I years ago. Southern California and some property we owned. And we left, went to another state and it was being managed and our renters stopped paying rent and turns out the property manager wasn't doing what the contract said they were supposed to be doing. They didn't do due diligence. So we got all kinds of counsel. Well, you need to sue them. You need to sue your property manager. Well, it turns out our property manager was a believer. We knew that. And I'm like, I'm not suing our property manager. No way. It's violating 1 Corinthians 6. Grieves God. Well, you can get thousands. Well, too bad. So I actually talked to our property man, a fellow brother. Man, here's the deal. I think you missed out. You didn't do due diligence. Didn't necessarily agree at first. Then we went to his boss, who was also a Christian, who became the arbiter, arbitrator, and we made an agreement. And they took a loss and we took a hit. And it was resolved. But we took a hit, financially speaking, but I think it pleased God. The unbelieving world didn't have to see this mess, this mess up, and destroy the testimony. So... You might have to be defrauded. This is just among believer and believer. Verse 8, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud each other. You're selfish. You're self-centered. You just want your buck. You just want your way. You want to prove yourself right. You want to be exonerated. You're not putting God's glory and His truth first. It's really what's driving this. It all comes down to a motive. Bottom line, Christians may never sue other Christians in pagan courts or the church. They may never sue... A Christian should never sue a church. This poses all kinds of problems. And questions, well, what about Christian lawyers? Because we do have Christians who become lawyers. What happens when a, lawyer, a Christian lawyer has a, a, a case where there's two believers who are involved and they're going to try to resolve this in a secular court before a secular judge with secular law? If I was the pastor of that Christian lawyer, I would say, you need to, every time you get two believers, your counsel should be, do not take this to a public court. Take it to the church. Take it offline. Try to resolve this personally before God, before Christ, don't ever. And I, would, and I couldn't with a clear conscience if I was a Christian lawyer ever pursue a case like that. Knowingly, in a secular pagan court, I've got a believer over here and a believer over here before some pagan judge. Seeing these squabbling, whining, divisive Christians who can't even get along. Some savior, you, savior you've got. So that's what's at stake. So it, it's a challenge. And I, I know, I have friends who are Christian lawyers. They've asked me about this. This is hard. This puts him in a difficult place. But you can do it because I know of a Christian lawyer who does this. This is his policy. It's like me as a pastor. If you want to get married and you ask me to do your wedding, well, are you a believer? Yes. Are you a believer? No. Okay, then I'm not doing the wedding. It's not that hard. Well, they might not like you anymore. Oh, well, it's, not, it's God's law, not my law. Well, they might be offended. Well, I'm sorry. Then be saved. Repent. Solve the problem. Then I'll do your wedding. So Christians may never sue other Christians. No doubt we've got many other examples and questions that raise. Let's go on to number four. Christians, this is kind of a corollary truth. But Christians, okay, so Christians may never sue other Christians in pagan courts, but, number four, Christians may appeal to Caesar when they are wrong. In other words, Christians may at times go to court. They may defend themselves legally in court under the law. And the conditions are, if the law that is a legitimate law warrants it, you may go 
An appeal to Caesar, appeal to the law. I use that phrase, appeal to Caesar, because that's what Paul said in Acts 25, 11. The Apostle Paul was unique because he was a Jew and an Israelite first, but he was also born as a Roman citizen, which was very rare. He had all the rights and privileges of a citizen of Rome, which were vast and many, like here in America. The rights you have as a citizen. One of the rights you had as a Roman citizen is you had freedom to travel just about anywhere. You weren't considered property, you were a person. Also, one of the uh, rights you had is nobody could just arrest you off the street without a trial and start whipping you and flog you like they could with a, Roman, uh, a non-Roman citizen. So, several times Paul appeals to Caesar. As a matter of fact, he got in trouble. Uh, Acts chapter 16, he's going into Philippi, he's preaching the gospel, he gets arrested Actually, he creates a tumult because he's preaching about Jesus. Uh, they converge on him. They call the police. They try to arrest him. Uh, the magistrates and the judges have Paul arrested. And then they have the police grab him and brutalize him and beat him and whip him without a trial. Out in public on the street. Police brutality. Acts chapter 16. Paul didn't complain at the time. They threw him in stocks, put him in prison. God released him from prison, or angels did, Acts 16 says. And then the, the guy over the prison gets saved. And then the judges and the magistrates and the police, they hear about this incident. And so they send a messenger boy, oh, that Paul guy, go ahead and let him out of prison and, and, and tell him to leave town. And Paul's like, I, I am not going anywhere. Those dudes that arrested me and beat me, if they want me to leave, they need to come to my face because I am a Roman citizen and they had no right to do that. He appeals to the law of the land. He verbalizes his rights, and they are good. It's a good law. He demands that the magistrates and the policemen who arrested him come and to his face, and they do. And they come to the prison, and they're all uh, scared, and they're bending down, they're being cordial and nice. All of a sudden, oh, Paul, we're sorry, we didn't know you were a Roman citizen. Okay, can you please leave town? And Paul speaks up. You violated my rights. You violated the law, and I want the world to know that because I don't want a precedent set so that Christians will be mistreated, violating the law, depriving them of their legal rights. You were wrong. So he appealed to Caesar in Acts 16. He did it again in Acts chapter 22-25. Same thing. Gets arrested and they, they pull him out and they're about to just whip him on the spot. There was no trial and the police are following orders and they tie his arms and they stretch him out and they be, they're about to start whipping him which could lead to his death and he intervenes and he says, I'm a Roman citizen. How dare you violate the law? And then they stopped and the soldiers and the policemen, they panic. Whoa, whoa we didn't know you were a Roman citizen. Really? And they went and talked to the judge. This guy says he's a Roman citizen. They come back. Are you really a Roman citizen? Yeah, I am. I am a Roman citizen. And then the judge says, well, well, I bought my right. I bought my citizenship. And Paul says, well, I was born a citizen, which was a higher level of citizenship. And so the judge panicked because he knew that if he whipped the Apostle Paul without a trial, without violating the law, Paul was not guilty of anything. That guy could lose his job. And much worse could have happened. So Paul actually appealed to Caesar. He appealed to the law of the land to avoid getting whipped illegitimately. And it was before a pagan court. He wasn't dealing with believers. That was the difference. Christians may appeal to Caesar if the, if the law warrants it. And also, Christians need to appeal to Caesar or the law to defend themselves in a court and even in a secular court to restrain evil. 1 Timothy 1. 8 through 11, Romans 13, 1 through 7. I want to read 1 Timothy 1 because it is so important. This is, we need this perspective about what law is for, how we are supposed to use it. 1 Timothy 1, verse 8 says this We know as Christians that the law is good. The law is good. Some of these, these laws that protect and preserve society and human life, those are good laws. That's why God gave laws. 
Anytime a, law, a human law corresponds with God's law, it's a good law. We know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, you can abuse the law. You can pervert and twist and manipulate the law for ill. But the law inherently from God is good. Verse 9, realizing this fact that the law is good, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, a law-abiding citizen doesn't need a law because they follow the rules. They do what's right. But the law is for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and for sinners and for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill murderers, their fathers or their mothers. For murderers, the law is for immoral men and homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound biblical teaching. That's what the law is for. The law is good. We need to use the law to protect people, to restrain evil, to restrain tyranny that smothers basic human rights that God has given people. People who are made in God's image, who are given freedom, faith, liberty by God's design. And whenever satanic evil tyranny wants to smother that through man-made laws, we need to appeal to the law to fight for justice because God says that we can. Also, we need to appeal to Caesar if the law warrants and to restrain evil if it is not for personal retaliation. It can't be for personal retaliation. And we can appeal to Caesar in a secular court but never against other believers or against the church. I just thank God for uh, organizations, Christian organizations, Christian legal organizations that have as a goal protecting our rights, our basic rights, good rights, upholding good law, preserving justice so that we can live peaceably as 1 Timothy 2 says we could. Some of these uh, organizations I appreciate that are out doing this, appealing to Caesar to restrain evil in this society, the ACLJ, great organization, The HSLDA, what is that? That is the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Seeking to preserve the rights of parents in this country as they are being attacked and smothered by tyrannical, unjust laws. For example, this was a recent one. A bunch of us were down at the Shepherds Conference two years ago. And here's an article that was printed in light of a controversy that came up, a legal issue. Listen to this article. On March 5th, this was two years ago. Here in America, in California, on March 5th, a three-judge panel, three people, a three-judge panel of the second appellate court in Los Angeles ruled that homeschooling, that's what I do, and many of you do, homeschooling violates California law and the state constitution. This was two years ago. Justice H. Walter Krosky opines, quote, parents do not have a constitutional right to homeschool their children, end quote. A judge in Los Angeles rendered this verdict. This is unbelievable. Judge Krosky, who gave the opinion, is an elder in a liberal Presbyterian church in the Palisades. His statement is ghastly and wrong. God has given children to families and parents, not to the government. Proverbs, the book of Proverbs in the Bible, is the divine guidebook on educating children, and God mandates that parents take the lead in educating their children. Quote, Proverbs 1, 8 and 9, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head. End quote. 
Here in this proverb, God says that home education by the parents is a wreath of blessing and reward. The secular government, in this case, wants to trample on this heavenly wreath for three unelected officials to whimsically deprive 50,000 parents of their basic rights through a prejudiced, tyrannical decree is akin to communism that is hostile to liberty, privacy, and faith. History is rife with examples of such totalitarian oppression. Homeschooling is not un-American, by the way. Can you say George Washington? That unforgettable model American guy on all your money? He was homeschooled. Can you say Abraham Lincoln? He was kind of an exemplary American. He was homeschooled. Can you say Tim Tebow? He just won the Heisman Trophy. He was a homeschoolery. Wimbledon champions Venus and Serena Williams, they were homeschooled. Evan O'Dorney, the 13-year-old homeschooler from California who won the gold last May in the National Spelling Bee. Homeschooler. Four of the last six National Geography Bee winners were homeschooled. Examples abound. Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, John Quincy Adams, Robert E. Lee, Patrick Henry, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, Agatha Christie, Douglas MacArthur, Patton, Twain, Booker T. Washington, the Wesleys, Jonathan Edwards, D.L. Moody, Supreme Court Justices John Rutledge, John Jay, and John Marshall, all homeschoolers. Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Edison, Kearney, John Stuart Mill, the Wrights, former Stanford president and father of the Silicon Valley, Fred Terman, homeschooler. Timothy Hooper, John McManus I, my son, homeschooler. <laughs> I could go on and on, but I won't because I'm going over time. That was an article that came out. That was an article that came out two years ago in uh, I think Cliff's Notes. That's what that was. I love that article. But anyway, point being, Christians may appeal to Caesar under those conditions. And let's go on to the last two. To wrap it up, number five, there are consequences for violating God's basic command. Galatians 6 says, you will reap what you sow. And if God commands something and you violate that command, you are going to reap negative, adverse consequences for violating willingly, knowingly God's command. That's just all there is to it. Now you know. 1 Corinthians 6 is clear. Do not sue another Christian in a secular court. If you do, there will be negative consequences. For you, the person you sued... And for the church, you will mar the testimony of the church before an unbelieving world. What cause will they have to believe in the gospel when you do that? There are consequences. There will be consequences in the church, your own personal life. You'll undermine your spiritual growth. You'll mess up your testimony. You'll confuse the world. You will dishonor God and dishonor Christ. You will undermine the Bible. Ramifications. You'll make Satan happy. Isn't that motive enough? There are also future consequences. And I want to read this. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 10 says this. Uh, I did not... Uh, 2 Corinthians, sorry. 2 Corinthians 5. This is a sobering verse. Consequences to everything, really. Uh, For we must all appear before the judgment seat, the Bema seat. That is a, a judgment seat of Jesus Christ Himself. We must all, all of us Christians, must someday in the afterlife, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the judge, according to John 5, in order that each one of us may be recompensed or paid back for the deeds that we have done in the body according to what we have done in this life, whether good or worthless. There's a judgment day coming. We have to account for it. And we could actually be given more rewards or a loss of rewards based on our obedience. We won't lose our forgiveness, but there will be either a gaining of rewards or a loss of eternal heavenly rewards based on our obedience. That's the point of 2 Corinthians 5.10. So there are consequences. And finally, point number six in all of this, overriding wonderful principle, leave room for God's ultimate justice. Leave room for God's ultimate justice in all of your disputes. Uh, the New Testament terminology says, leave room for the wrath of God. Insofar as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. And yes, there will be injustices 
But know this, all wrongs will be made right. All, every wrong in this life will be made right by God, the eternal judge in the future. Guaranteed. You can count on it. You need to believe it. You need to walk by faith. You need to trust God for it. You need to get over it. You need to trust God, like I said, like Abraham in Genesis 18:25, when he said, "Will not the God of all will not God do what is just? The God of all the earth, He will do the right thing. Will not the Judge of the earth do what is right? He will." So I want to close with Romans 12:17. Uh, Romans 12:17. Never pay back evil for evil. See, don't don't be involved in personal retaliation. Don't do that. If you've got a legal issue, then deal with it legally. Either in the church court or in the secular court. It's an unbeliever and the law allows for it. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everyone. Uh, never take your own revenge. Never take your own personal revenge, believer, but leave room for the wrath of God for it is written. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Every injustice will be made a right in the life to come. Verse 20, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. And in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. What does that mean? You will shame him publicly by doing good and right to him. And then finally, in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And let's trust God, the God of all the universe and all of the ages and all people, that He's a good God, He's a good and just God, and He will make all things right. And in the meantime, we need to trust Him and abide by the decrees that He has given. And we can do that by the help of His Holy Spirit. Let's go ahead and pray to Him and thank Him. Father, we do thank You that You are the judge of the earth, a good judge, perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing, and will render justice in this lifetime, but also final, eternal justice as well. Every sin will be found out. Every good will be rewarded. Thank You for that great truth. God, ingrain that truth into our minds. Thank You for the indwelling Holy Spirit who is a, a lawyer, a paraclete on our behalf. He is our advocate. He pleads for us. He seeks our good. May we be sensitive to His leading. Thank You for a conscience that is a legal mechanism You've put in our mind to know what is right and wrong, to obey You, to be sensitive to Your leading. Thank You for the Word of God which is a legal document to help us discern right and wrong, what is moral, what is ethical. Thank You for saving us by justification which was a legal process for punishing Jesus with death, with the death that we deserve that we might be free. The great news of the Gospel. Thank You so much. All for Your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.